My name is Velma Vouloir, and you are listening to Controversy. Hello, gorgeous humans. Welcome back. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. I'm Velma Vouloir and you are listening to episode 13, lucky number 13 of Controversy. I'm very excited to be bringing you today's episode. It's a real fun one and something that has really had an absolutely massive ripple effect on contemporary Western society, especially when it comes to to sex and sexuality. It's one of those things where, you know, sometimes we look at certain time periods or generalizations or opinions about something. And I just find it really fun to go, yeah, but why? Why is that the way it is? When did that become the norm? Or when did it stop becoming the norm? And that's what we're getting into today. And I know I'm jumping ahead. uh, So we'll get into that in just a second. You can probably tell by the tone of my voice, or at least I can even feel it right now when I'm speaking into the microphone, is that my headspace is just in such a better place than it has been over the last couple of weeks. Oh my God, it's just insane how much a little bit of sunshine and being out of lockdown just feels like the most incredible thing ever. We're allowed out in Melbourne again. We still have some restrictions, but that's fine. All I know is that I'm spending my entire weekend this week teaching classes and performing with some of the greatest humans alive. I'm so, so happy. I'm so, 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 so happy about it. I get to get back into what I love doing most, which is taking my clothes off for fun and for money. (laughs) And uh, I get to inspire and educate others on how they too can take their clothes off for fun and money. (laughs) And just, you know, generally be surrounded by exceptional people who enjoy the same things uh, as me. Maybe I'll throw a martini in there somewhere and some cheese and crackers. Merry Christmas me. Christmas in July has come early. So in controversy news, well, first up, probably because it's the most important, it's the most urgent, definitely, is that this is your last week to let me know if you want a controversy t-shirt. Last week for pre-orders this week. If you don't pre-order, you can't have one. It's that easy. And I'm sorry it has to be that way, but please, please, please get in touch with me if you would like one. DM me, Email me at controversypodcast at gmail.com. I don't know, carrier pigeon me, whatever you got to do, just tell me and I will make all your controversy t-shirt wishes come true. They come in black and white. Uh, We've got a whole range of sizes. Just get in touch with me and I will hook you up with one you have until the end of the week to get in touch. And I know if you don't, you'll be super sad when you see everyone else wearing one and they're going to look all cool and you'll be all mad. So don't let that happen. Just message me. I will finalize the numbers at the end of the week, pop that order in, and then they'll arrive very shortly. 
shortly after and I'll post them out to you. Very exciting. So thank you so much to everyone who has already popped their name down for one. I can't wait to see you all wearing those. In other controversy news, things are slowly kicking up a gear for us here at the podcast. Things are a little bit hectic, but in the best possible way. There's new guest episodes on the horizon. I'm finally going to be updating the website soon. I'm going to be making some very special controversy specific content for you and especially for the Patreons, as well as participating in some very, very exciting events as controversy in the not too distant future. We have some incredible sponsors coming on board. Uh, We'll get some advertising up and running, you know, all these kind of grown up podcast things that are really exciting for me. It's a really exciting step for the continuation and the history of the show. And that's all happening. I'm just really genuinely excited to share all of that happening in the coming months. I think sometimes I have to remind myself it's only been a couple months. We're still a very new show, but we just have this incredible bubble of love around us. And I'm genuinely surprised at how many listeners we have already and from all over the world as well. You know, when I started this, I said to myself, oh, you know, if like 10 people listen, I'll be happy. Um, And we have thousands of listens. This is amazing. And I just want to do you all proud. I really want to make this show everything and more for you and for others. And I just appreciate the support I've been shown so far. I know I say thank you a lot, but I mean it. And yeah, I just feel like enough is never enough. So you're just going to have to deal with me saying thank you a lot. Okay. Don't forget to share the word about the show as well, everyone. Don't forget to tell all your pervy friends about controversy. Share all our shit on social media. Rate and review the show. Play us over the sound system at your office, at your annoying retail job. You know, whatever you got to do. Spread the love wherever and however you can. All right. So actually, I'm just going to have a quick sip of coffee. It's probably my third for the day so far. All right. Caffeinated. Good. So this week, we are going to get stuck into the Hayes Code. And I am obsessed with this history. I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you. This is an interesting one this week because it isn't so much specifically a lascivious story in of itself, but it's a really fascinating piece of history that has had a huge impact on how generations of people perceived what was or wasn't appropriate or what was so-called common behavior, specifically when it came to sexuality. You know, so much of what we perceive to be acceptable, um, and I am doing air quotes here when I say things like common and acceptable, I just realized you can't see (laughs) that I'm doing that, but I am doing that. Um, Yeah, it's a podcast, Velma, air quotes don't work. Cool, noted. All right. So, those perceptions of what is acceptable, even to this day, it comes a lot of the time from the things we see in media or from, say, what our elders and teachers kind of tell us is okay. So it makes you wonder, where did they get those ideas from? Where did they get that information from? And a lot of the time, our older elders, our parents, our grandparents, it's the same as us. They get their information from the media. They get their information from their elders and teachers. And so it makes you want to go back to a bit of an origin story. Where did these ideas originate from? Who 
is out there deciding this is moral and this is smart. This is okay. This is not. Who has the power to do that, to influence us on that level? You know, who has the right to look at a pair of eight inch thigh high black leather boots and go obscenity? You know, that must be censored immediately. So who does that? Do we have any ideas? Here I am asking rhetorical questions again. Aside from, you know, society as a whole, a lot of the time, it's religion. It's religion and the church. And the church does, especially in Western society, play a big old role here, even for those of us that aren't religious. In the Western world, which is what we're looking at specifically today, they still have a very big say. You know, we like to think that church and state are separate entities, don't we? But we know that that's just not true. You know, conservative opinions are rife in politics. So today I'm going to be telling you all about a time when the church had such an impact on how the world was seen, specifically through cinema, that it created a ripple effect that permeated throughout most of the 20th century and therefore permeated throughout the ideologies and education of the families and individuals who lived during the 20th century, most specifically our grandparents and our parents and their social circles. And I know I'm still being very vague, aren't I? So let me get into this with you now. So today, let's take you back in time just a little bit to the 1930s, to the silver screen, to the golden age of Hollywood. Pour yourself a stiff drink, lay some jewels on, pin curl your hair, light 4,000 cigarettes one after the other. This is where we are hanging out for today's episode, where I'm going to tell you all about what is now known as the Hayes Code. So sources for today's episode come from everyone's best friend, Wikipedia. <laughs> Very academic, I know. As well as Elena Nicolaou's research from Ladies First, The Hayes Code Made Hollywood Hell on Earth for Women, David Denby's 2016 article published in The New Yorker called Sex and Sexier, Andrew Milne's research presented at allthatsinteresting.com, and Kristen Peacock's paper for the Office for Intellectual Freedom of the American Library Association. All right, so I love movies. I am one of those absolute wankers that likes, that really likes to think of themselves as a bit of a movie buff. And specifically, I love old movies. I love the golden age of cinema. That is what really began my obsession with the stage, with showgirls, with femme fatales. It was because I was really lucky enough to be shown so many classic golden age films, mostly from my grandma, uh, from a really, really young age. Films like The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Gilda, Casablanca, Citizen Kane, American in Paris, Singing in the Rain, Sunset Boulevard, all of those. They're all just so well known and so well loved. And despite the content of these movies often having what would be considered, you know, adult or mature themes, the way that they were presented was very all ages friendly. You know, for example, something like Sunset Boulevard or Casablanca, if those films were made today, they'd be full of sex and violence and coarse language, right? When we watch them, there's no bad language. There's no sex scenes, no outlandish violence. It's what we would perceive to be 
old timey and I'm doing air quotes again. Um, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> so, you know, most of us would just kind of go, oh, they just didn't really do or show explicit things in films back then. Well, I am here to tell you that you are very, very much mistaken. I'm here to tell you that when it comes to Western cinema, it's absolutely not a case of, oh, we used to be prudish and then slowly we began to find more and more things socially acceptable. No, not at all. You have been fed a lie. So there is a reason you don't see bodice ripping, passionate love scenes or sexual exploration or heated language in films like that. There's a reason that in movies and TV shows in the mid-century, husbands and wives are shown sleeping in separate beds. It's not because that's what people commonly did, not at all. It's all because of the Hayes Code. So the Hayes Code was a list of very specific censorship guidelines that was strictly enforced across Hollywood from 1934 for decades. And the Hayes Code was officially known as the Motion Picture Production Code. So it was essentially a legal rule book that told you exactly what you could and couldn't put in a movie. And before I get into detail about the Hayes Code, I want to spend some time talking about what was happening in film and in Hollywood pre-1934, which is what is now often referred to as pre-code cinema. Because let me tell you, pre-code cinema, it was raunchy as fuck. It was progressive. It was badass. For everyone out there who associates old black and white movies as being a bit of a snooze fest and hasn't actually watched them, I politely ask you to go back and re-watch some of these because they are an absolute ride. These films are full of sex and nudity, bad language. They're full of all the fun stuff. It's all there. So let's take it back to the roaring 20s for a hot minute and also talk about film during this time. In the 1920s, in the USA, women gained the legal right to vote in 1920. And there was a huge shift in attitudes towards women during this time. Women were getting educated more than ever. The number of women attending college and university rose really steadily throughout the 1920s. And apparently the number of degrees awarded to women went from 19% at the turn of the century to 39% in 1928. Women were working as factory workers, secretaries, and sales clerks. They weren't just homemakers or housewives anymore. Women were voting and women were having sex. From this statistic I got, it says around 14% of women born between 1900 and 1910 had premarital sex. However, over 40% of women who came of age between 1910 and 1920 did. So that is a huge spike in a very short amount of time. So in short, women's worlds were expanding beyond the home. And as art imitates life, film started reflecting these changes. And let's also not forget that film itself was relatively new at the time. The silent era of film was in its height from around 1912 to 1927. And then in 1927, the first ever talking motion picture came out, which was Alan Crossland's The Jazz Singer. And from there, things just took off. Now, 
We also have The Great Depression, which hit in 1928, and film became a huge salvation to suffering communities. You know, movies were cheap to attend, most people could go, you could take the kids and just escape reality for a while. I mean, don't we all know a thing or two about that these days, huh? How many of us during the pandemic have just held on to our movies and TV shows and attached ourselves to fantasy characters and narratives just to keep on going? It was the same here. And these films during this time from about 1927 into the early 1930s, these films were complicated. They were messy. They were beautiful, just like life itself. They were also incredibly inclusive, especially when it came to race and sexuality. Uh, Just as one example, Greta Garbo's character, Christina, in the film Queen Christina, in that movie, she is an openly bisexual woman. She kisses and sleeps with women in the film. And that wasn't the point or the premise of the film. Her being openly gay was just an inclusive fact about her character. Many films as well included interracial friendships and relationships without any particular fuss. It was all very normal and reflected 1920s life in a really honest, beautiful way. However, the Hayes Code would soon put a stop to this. It would label these things as abhorrent and immoral. And in many ways, it put progressive society back in the closet and on the back foot until the 1960s. And there's a great author, Mick LaSalle, and he writes in his book called Complicated Women, before the Hayes Code, women on screen took lovers, had babies out of wedlock, got rid of cheating husbands, enjoyed their sexuality, held down professional positions without apologizing for their self-sufficiency, and in general, acted the way many of us think women acted only after 1968. He also argues that the era between 1929 and 1934 was the best in history for women on screen. A couple of gorgeous and very well-known examples of films during these times, one would be Red-Headed Woman from 1932 and one of my favorites, Babyface in 1933. I also just really quickly want to read you an excerpt uh, from Elena Nicolau's research because she just sums it up so beautifully. She writes... When it came to the treatment of female characters, films of this era were more progressive than most of those that came almost a century later, and the public ate it up. During the Great Depression, movies were a cheap and accessible form of entertainment and a necessary escape from the hardships of the era. Audiences bought 80 million movie tickets a week in 1930. And actresses like Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Claudette Colbert, Catherine Hepburn, Miriam Hopkins, Betty Davis, and Marlene Dietrich drove the box office. Further, the movie's morality was grounded in the idea that people in power are corrupt, morality is relative, and the shrewdest character wins, rather than some Puritan idea of right and wrong. Good guys get scathed. Bad guys go unpunished and disobedient women get ahead. These imperfect female characters did not have to be examples of what not to do. They could just be. And the audiences loved it. The possibilities on screen reflected a time of change for the women sitting in the audience. Some signs of liberation were flaunted proudly. Corsets were gone. Hemlines were raised. Makeup was applied in public. 
and hair was cut above the shoulder in a bob. Women who use their bodies as tools for advancement? How else do you think Barbara Stanwyck's Lily made it out of her hovel in Babyface? Gold digging? An entire musical called Gold Diggers in 1933 was just about women finding husbands during the Great Depression. Women who act callously towards men. Jean Harlow's Lil in Redheaded Woman is as unapologetic as ever. You have sex workers who aren't punished for their profession. In 1932's Reign, Sadie Thompson, played by Joan Crawford, is shown to be far more morally upright than the priest who is struggling against and then eventually gives into his lust. The complex women on screen captured the many varied directions a woman's life could take at the time. So Norma Shearer, who was a box office wonder, married the influential MGM producer Irving Thalberg and then eradicated the idea that ingenues and starlets had to be innocent. Her characters were sweet and they liked sex, which is a dichotomy many women in the audience personally understood and related to and knew that was possible. This was the time in Hollywood where, you know, Marlene Dietrich arrived to movie premieres wearing a tuxedo and when Mae West threw out her most notorious one-liners such as, when I'm good, I'm very good, and when I'm bad, I'm better. But this frank, progressive era of filmmaking would only last for so long because, as is always the way, the conservatives, and in particular the church, had something to say about it. And this is where we all go, boo, (laughs) boo. At this time in American history, movies were not protected under the First Amendment. And that was thanks to a 1915 Supreme Court decision that deemed motion pictures so potentially powerful, they had to be regulated. Movies were considered a business as opposed to an art form, and therefore they were capable of good and evil. They were thought to have the power to shape and also to corrupt malleable audiences. And that sort of begins our story of how the Hayes Code came to be. So the code was created to help rehabilitate the image of the movie industry after a number of Hollywood scandals throughout the 1920s, including the murder and alleged rape of actress Virginia Rape. And if you've ever seen Ryan Murphy's series Hollywood or the Coen brothers film Hail Caesar, this is where we are in Hollywood. It is gangsters. It is single ingenues falling pregnant out of wedlock. Uh, it's covering up drug addiction. It's all of that. Because everyone in Hollywood gets away with everything, there absolutely was that sort of salacious, risque element to it. So this made religious groups call for censorship uh, of the behavior of Hollywood itself, as well as the content seen on film. And in 1922... When the Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors Association, also known as the MPAA, was formed, William Hayes, a Republican politician and devout Catholic, was elected its president. Then in 1930, Hayes gathered fellow conservatives, including the conservative publisher and film magazine journalist Martin Quigley, as well as a priest, Father Daniel A. Lord, to help write a code to list what would be appropriate and inappropriate for movies. So the Hayes Code begins with the following general ideas. One, 
No picture shall be produced which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. Number two, correct standards of life subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment shall be presented. And number three, law divine, natural or human shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. So things like vulgarity, sex, murder, obscenity, profanity, and religion had standardized ways that they must be represented. For example, when shooting a murder scene, it was imperative that the technique of murder must be presented in a way that it will not inspire imitation and brutal killings are not to be presented in detail. In the case of sex, it was deemed that the sanctity of the institution of marriage shall always be upheld. Scenes of passion, seduction, excessive kissing, as well as relationships between different races were forbidden. So this code was very idealistic and it was also completely ignored by studios that were making all this money off these racy movies. The code was called a joke by the Hollywood Reporter in 1931. So they weren't off to a good start. Then, in 1934, the Catholic Legion of Decency was formed and they put out a national boycott of movies. They told everyone. They had pamphlets. They said it in mass. Do not go to the movies. It's full of sin. And people listened. And this boycott, it worked. Ticket sales for the movies dropped massively. I'm so sorry if you hear all this background noise. I'm currently sitting in the middle of a gigantic storm. (laughs) So if you hear any loud crashes or anything, it's probably just my windows caving in from all the rain. Anyway, yes. So ticket sales for the movies dropped massively. And then other religious and social groups started doing the same thing. And pretty soon studios faced potentially being shut down. Production was stopping. And nearly 300,000 jobs were on the line. Hollywood conceded and agreed to the terms laid out in the code. In 1934, Production Code Administration called PCA, headed by someone called Joseph Breen, was founded, which devoted itself to making sure all movies abided by the Hayes Code. So the PCA can officially be called the Fun Police. And it was from here on out, right up until the 1960s, that Hollywood film and television was subject to these laws. And it wasn't just a matter of the PCA deciding what wasn't allowed in films. They played a very active role in deciding what would be allowed in films. They had an agenda. So now movies were always to be models of proper behavior. They were made to be examples as opposed to art. And this especially impacted women characters. So while actresses still ruled the screens, they were still the stars. Their characters were so simplified. Their characters had to either get married or if they did something out of line, get punished. For actresses such as Mae West and Marlene Dietrich, it was essentially the end of their careers. They were box office poison in this newly sanitized landscape of Hollywood. And the movies they were typically starring in, which were movies that featured women on the cutting edge of social issues, they weren't being made. And really, the only actresses that survived this period 
were the ones that could be funny or who could dance. There wasn't even room for seduction anymore, let alone that kind of sex positive out and proud characters that was so well represented in the pre-code era of film. And the code, once it came in, it really did hurt women in terms of what they were able to do on film. They didn't have many topics to talk about aside from really simple generalized things like love and fashion and love for their children. You couldn't talk about attraction. You couldn't talk about desire or sex or pregnancy even or abortion. The Hayes Code, it also had the effect of further whitewashing the movies where interracial relationships of any kind were suddenly banned. And this directly limited the amount of principal roles available to people of color. And it tended to only really have them instead play harmful stereotypes. And a great example of this is with the careers of legendary actors Anna Mae Wong and Hattie McDaniels. Anna Mae Wong was heralded as the first Chinese-American movie star. She had been making headway in Hollywood during the 1910s and 20s, but could no longer get any leading roles in the 30s. Once the Hayes Code was enforced, there was nothing she could really play other than a villain or a temptress. The code, it banned suggestions of interracial sex, and that combined with Hollywood's disgusting tradition of using yellow-faced Western actors to play Asian roles, it meant that Wong's options were gone. She had a really sort of tragic tale where she never recovered from losing the lead role in the movie The Good Earth because the male lead was a white actor playing yellow-face and a white man, even doing yellow-face, could not appear with a Chinese-American woman because that went against the code's rule of having an interracial couple playing alongside one another. So that role, it went to Louise Rayner, who also played the character in Yellowface, and she actually won the Best Actress Oscar for that role in 1938, and Wong was completely devastated, as you bloody well would be. Hattie McDaniel was also a rising star in the entertainment world throughout the 20s, and she finally got her foot in the studio doors just as the Hayes Code was coming into effect. And this meant that all the roles she received were usually as that of a mammy, which is, of course, a racial caricature, which is offensive and blood boiling as a person to be put in a box like that. But as an artist and creative as well, it's just completely suffocating. She was so limited with what she was given. And Hattie McDaniel would actually go on to become the first African-American to win an Oscar, which she won for Best Supporting Actress for her role in 1939's Gone with the Wind. However, the wind didn't allow her to assume more leading or less stereotypical roles. So as well as erasing passion, female independence and pleasure from cinema... It also erased tolerance and equality. It really did a number on setting progress backwards. And it moved America and by default other countries who consumed American media into this weird Pleasantville conservative you know, American dream kind of era where families only had these very limited representations of air quote life to refer to. And I'm not saying people stopped being naughty or living their lives, but it definitely created a framework to compare so-called acceptable ways of life to immoral ways of life. 
When it came to love and sex, a very clear image developed in golden age cinema of what love and romance was supposed to look like. And that rubbed off on the psyche of those that grew up watching those movies. It's pre-TV, it's pre-internet. The movies were where you got that glimpse of the outside world. And in pre-code films, you've got passion, you've got people fighting, you've got people using each other, manipulating each other, standing up for themselves, you've got complex plots. And suddenly in golden age cinema, you have this fluffy, lovely, sweet ideal of romance being presented. You know, you've got the sweethearts who are always a white straight couple who fall in love, get engaged, then maybe kiss, then get married and have children, more or less. So under the Hayes Code, that ideology of romance was invented and it really flourished. And with that, it also created a somewhat unrealistic depiction of what love was really like. I mentioned earlier about uh, married couples uh, in films sleeping in separate beds. That was a direct Hayes Code instruction in order to convince moviegoers that there'd be no funny business, no sex in these scenes, that these people were in fact just going to sleep. And then it had this crazy effect, of course, where it rubbed off on people. The number of couples who actually did go and buy separate beds rose dramatically when previously that wasn't done unless someone, you know, was ill at the turn of the century. People saw this shit as the norm and, you know, people want to be seen as being normal. Well, some people want to be normal, not me. And I'm guessing not you, but you know, everyone else. <laughs> and I don't want to hang shit on golden age cinema because I love golden age cinema. There's really something so delightful and nostalgic about it, but when you put it in the context that it was done under scrutiny from the Catholic Legion of Decency and that artists wanted to put things on screens that they couldn't, it definitely shines a different light on it, right? When you see art being sacrificed or changed in the name of so-called decency, it's shit. Another great example, Betty Boop, the infamous cartoon. She's a brilliant example of Hayes Code censorship. When Betty Boop first appeared on screens in 1930, she's the ultimate symbol of jazz age sexuality. She's a flapper. She wears a teeny little dress. She has the short hair. She's coquettish and flirty. And her dialogue is full of sexual innuendo. Come 1934, she goes through this weird transformation. Her dress becomes long, her hair becomes longer. She becomes a housewife, essentially. And that wasn't an artistic choice. That was just flat out censorship installed by the Hayes Code. Going back to Gone with the Wind, most people are aware of how scandalous Rhett Butler's final line, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, was. But it's important to know, and I certainly didn't understand this for a long time, but saying the word damn in 1939, it wasn't like a gasp-worthy thing. People swore. People swore all the time. People used bad language. People said shit and fuck every day. But once the Hayes Code came into play, you no longer heard any bad language in the movies. And that's why it caused such a commotion. Yet 10 years earlier, you had Barbara Stanwyck saying fuck in movies. And fun fact, Gone with the Wind was actually fined $50,000 for using the word damn, which is the equivalent of a million dollars today. So even that, the word damn did not get away unscathed. And there are literally 
hundreds and hundreds of examples like that where things were changed, modified and censored for the Hayes Code. But what I want to talk about briefly is one of the wins, the little acts of rebellion, the delightful creativity that artists and movie makers put into play to get around this censorship. And if you're a creator that includes anything remotely salacious in your work, you will know what I'm talking about. You know the constant battle you have to face to avoid total censorship. So what the Hayes Code effectively did was create the cinematic technique of implied or coded imagery. The Hayes Code created symbolism unknowingly. And these movie makers used symbolism so sneakily and so well, it allowed viewers to understand the nuances of the film's plot without technically overstepping the bounds of the code. And there's that sort of trope in golden age cinema of, you know, instead of showing a sex scene, the film would cut to a scene showing the actor's smoking cigarettes next to each other. And that kind of leaves the viewers to assume that they have had sex off screen, so to speak, in the film itself. Director Edward Dimitrik said, the code had a very good effect because it made us think if we wanted to get something across that was censorable, we had to do it deviously. We had to be clever. And it usually turned out to be much better than if we had just done it straight. So yeah, basically, you know, every film studies project you did in high school or uni where you'd watch a movie and talk about the themes and the symbolism, like what did it mean when the fire happened or the statue cracked or whatever. And if I sound snarky and jaded, it's because I did a creative arts degree and have dealt with that nonstop for my entire education. But yes, you you can thank the Hayes Code and therefore the Catholic Church for that. Thank you, Pope. Thank you for symbolism. So and another little positive that came out of the Hayes Code was that because the movies were so sanitized throughout the 30s, 40s and 50s, it meant that there was a huge rise in the popularity of live entertainment, specifically in burlesque. There is the direct opposition of the golden age of film in Hollywood, which is all pure and censored, with the golden age of burlesque, which is where this hoochie-coochie striptease erotic style of dance was at its absolute peak in popularity. And eventually, as more risque things started happening in film again, including the golden age of pornography, burlesque went back into the shadows again. A little bit like the circle of life. So when and why did the Hayes Code disappear? So a few things contributed to the Hayes Code fading from power. The first was that the head of the PCA, Joseph Bream, who I mentioned earlier, he retired in 1954 and he really was the dictator for this code. So slowly but surely, little things started going unpunished in cinema, just here and there, just, you know, a little glimpse of nudity or a little suggestive comment. And then of course, in society at the end of the 1950s, we have the sexual revolution about to kick off. There was a shift culturally. People just weren't happy with censorship. They wanted more. And then in 1959, a certain movie was made without approval from the code. They did it on the sly and they released it without asking. And it was a smash hit. And this movie effectively killed the Hayes Code dead in its tracks. It was the final nail in the coffin. And the movie that did it 
was one of my favorite films of all time, starring Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, and Marilyn Monroe in Some Like It Hot. It is the best movie, you guys. It's got drag, it's got sex, it's got innuendo, it's got lying and cheating and crime right in your face, and it's a masterpiece. So from there on out, the Hays Code just, people just basically ignored it more and more from there. And then in 1968, so still a little while later, the Hays Code was officially replaced by the Motion Picture Association of America's film rating system, which is more or less what we still have to this day. You've got the rating tiers, G, M, R, X, etc. And the MPAA is still in charge of rating films to this day. And that, you bunch of legends, is my little tale about the Hays Code for you. I wanted to share it because it really is an important part of history when it comes to morality and censorship that really has had that ripple effect on art and understandings of sex and sexuality. I hope you found it interesting. I hope you feel inspired to go check out some pre-code films. Babyface is a classic. Shanghai Express is another one of my favorites. So yeah, go enjoy some old-timey deliciousness. Don't forget to like us on Instagram and Facebook. Don't forget to subscribe to us, rate us, and review us. Do all those lovely things. Thank you for listening, everyone. I love sharing this stuff with you. We've got another great episode coming next week, so I look forward to seeing you then. As always, take care of one another, pay for your porn, don't fake your orgasms, and I will see you next Tuesday.